Welcome to episode 511 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature part three of a three-part series with time experimenter and artist David McDermott from a place in Dublin, Ireland. David is also part of the collaborative artistic team known as McDermott and McGough. This time we talk about Little Nemo, tarot cards, taxes, moving to Ireland, Times Square back in the day, religion in outer space, wine into Jesus' blood, the game of life, and a new documentary he is featured in among other things, a grand conversation, part three of three, with David McDermott. We also have an EWSA titled Gotta Smoke. We share the postscript from the February 13th and February 20th combined issue of the New Yorker magazine titled Tom Verlaine, written by Patti Smith. And we have an EW poem called The Motivated. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 511 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
gotta smoke. I am lost in a sea of cliches. I am here. I feel alone. An unaware drone. Not knowing how to build and nourish a home. Wait. I am knowing. Just not doing it. Tobacco, booze, fried foods, cannabis, oils, pills, herb, vape, smoke, nihilistic, empty joke, wondering what has happened. I had a dream last night where I laid down next to an aluminum ladder in my parents' backyard and cried softly for my father's passing. One of my sons watching me through a window in the sunroom overlooking our European-influenced garden. I want to be less a self-absorbed sociopath, weak and aimlessly wandering, with the eyes of a cynic, the id of a man who values, feels, only shallow stimuli. The fact that my subconscious was able to cry a little bit is a good sign. I'm going to seriously try to quit smoking tobacco this weekend. Please wish those who live with me well.
And now we have for you installment three of three from a conversation we had with time experimenter, artist, David McDermott from some place in Dublin, Ireland. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, this is David McDermott. David McDermott here on Troubadours and Rock on Tour. So whew, we, can, we, we can go all kinds of directions. I, I want to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about what you're working on at present. Uh, you, you are in Ireland. I know you were on a film set recently. There's a, a documentary, I believe, coming out soon. Do you want to talk about those projects or anything else you're working on? Well, I've been given cue cards here. So it says, Make Me Famous is screening at the Museum of the City of New York on April 18th. And that's about my very good friend, Edward Brzezinski, who wanted to be a famous artist and was so frustrated because there was fame popping up everywhere around us. And uh, anyway, it's a documentary about somebody who completely failed and uh then switzerland um i'm going to have an exhibition in switzerland at the end of uh let's the end of february in a in a tiny village way up in the um in the Ardez. alps and it's called Ardez. And you take a train um, through the winding valley up another thousand feet from Zurich. And it's a, a little Nemo um, tarot card deck for children. Um, There's 78 cards. And I've been working on it for 15 years with this um, young Irish artist friend named Liam Ryan. And the, do you know about little Nemo? Not not really, it, no. Well, it was um, a New York comic strip from the 1890s into the new century. And it's about a little boy who goes to sleep and then he wakes up on the moon or under the ocean or in the jungles of Africa. And, oh, it's just very elaborate. And we went through all the old... Um, comic strips to find the material to make up the tarot card deck because I've been reading tarot for 50 years and uh, whenever I would read the adults, the children would always beg me to read their cards and I'd have to then interpret them. And so this deck is completely positive and um, you know, for example, the hangman, which is a very heavy card we turned that into this man who's hanging from a tree in the jungle from his suspenders, and all these monkeys are climbing all over him. I love it. Great visual. Yes, well, that's my project. Now, let's see. What other things are here? <laughs> Wasn't there something in London? Just make me famous. Oh, and then that Make Me Famous movie is in London. Um, at the Art Bertha Dock House, and that's in February. T tell me a, a bit about uh, the Make Me Famous movie. 
Well, I already told you it's about Edward Brzezinski, who was my very good friend, and he wanted to be famous, and everything went awry. Uh, I love it. You know, it he, didn't be, he didn't become Jean-Michel Basquiat or Keith Haring or Kenny Sharp, and he was, you know, right next to them. And he was really one of the only, there were only about three painters on the Lower East Side. And he was one of them. Are you shocked? I am shocked. Three painters? Three painters. Three people you would consider painters. Well, I just didn't know of anyone else because I had to find painters to be in this art exhibition at Club 57. And we couldn't think of any. This was back, this is when? It's in this, um, maybe 1978, or maybe it was 79. Now, let me ask you, when did you move to Ireland and why did you move to Ireland? Because of your heritage? Well, I have a great Irish name, McDermott. You do. I mean, that name, but I won't go into it, but it has a very, they were the penny millionaires and they spent all their money in the 18th century. But um, I had heard that artists were tax exempt in Ireland. And here we were all, all these artists, we were on the Lower East Side, and I was attacked by the American tax system. And I was basically torn apart and shut down by them. And I was I was thought about this tax exemption for artists. And I went to the consulate on Park Avenue and I said, is it true that artists aren't taxed in Ireland? And they said, yes, it's true. And they gave me this strip of paper, which was from the tax files. And it said this, any way that an artist spends his money is of benefit to the Irish people. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of that? I love now, it. John F. Kennedy, he was interested in this bit of legislation that went through, um, I think, in the late 50s. But um, anyway, in other words, the, the Irish needed an aristocracy. They'd always had one. This is my theory. And so they decided, well, why don't we make the artists our our aristocracy, and we'll we'll put them above the tax law. So based on that, I decided, well, after this IRS attack, I'm going to go over there and reestablish myself because, um, I I mean, the IRS told me they were going to let me build up and then attack me again. I mean, it just was horrible. And it turned out that my art career was actually an example. And Bill Clinton, he apologized for the IRS because they sent spies into the New York art world as collectors, dealers, artists. And, but they were spies for the IRS to find out what was going on. So that's why I moved to Ireland. And, you know, of course, it was English speaking. And I also had this idea of um, not being thought of as only an American artist. You know, I thought, 
we'd be international artists and be on both sides of the Atlantic. Again, and I thought if we spend six months living in Paris, six months living in London, because we already knew people in those cities, we would be able to establish, because we definitely have the whole society in New York. And I think we could have established a But I've been living in Dublin for 30 years. And again, when you say we, you're talking about Peter and you. Well, yes, but I don't want to talk about um, him. I know. I just want to make sure people who are listening understand the reference. I don't, yeah, I respect that. I'm wondering, do you miss New York? Well, the thing about it is the New York that I miss, it ain't there no more. And uh, I can, I was watching this um, television series called Kojak. Yep, and I it's it's from the 1970s, and of course I didn't see it in the 1970s. You know, I wouldn't have. But I mean, it was completely nostalgic for me to watch it because, you know, I knew all the places, and and um, you know, I'd been involved in those types of situations. But. Um, no, I mean, I like the New York that I can watch in 1930s, 40s, and 50s movies. I mean, I I don't know. I don't like New York. Um, I mean, I went back, I don't know, about six or seven years ago. And it ain't the same place, that's for sure. I mean, Ishkabibble Iskovitz doesn't have his um, feather mattress stuff in shop on Ludlow Street anymore. I mean, all those, you know, all those events and people, you know, they're all gone. Yeah, it's a new place for sure. Sort of like Disney took it over, right? At least uh, Times Square area. And yeah. Oh, I have amazing memories of Times Square when it was all um, in decay. And uh, my grandmother, she told me stories about um, Times Square in the 1930s when they go over. And... Wonderful stories. I like the past. That's what I like. Well, And I think the past should be in the present. I don't think everything needs to be wiped out the way it is. And this whole belief in... The future, I mean, the future is horrible. You just have to watch those science fiction movies. You know, I don't believe we're going into outer space. I think that is a big lie. I think it's similar to religion and those Sputniks. They're similar to cathedrals and the movies they make about outer space. I mean, I like them, but I like religious movies, too. But you know, I don't believe in the religion and I don't believe I don't believe in that outer space. I think it's for young people so that they have this hope. I read this book chapter by chapter. It was a description about how human beings were going to conquer the universe with robots. And every chapter and at the end of the chapter, it basically they would say, well, it could all you know, they're talking about Mars and. They said they want to drop atom bombs on the north and south pole of Mars in order to melt the ice. I mean, these people are insane. <laughs> there's, there's this word 
in Catholicism, and it's called transubstantiation. Do you know what that means? No, tell me. It means when the wine gets turned into Jesus' blood and the bread gets turned into his flesh. And I've been told by Catholics that that is the essence of Catholicism. And if you don't believe that is happening, you're not a Catholic. And that's what I think is going on with the space program and all that. I think it's transubstantiation. They're asking us, they want us to believe in black holes. I mean, that is the absurd when these people can't even plant trees and can't even keep the ocean clean. And you know, that ocean, when they set sail, the explorers in 14 and 1500, that was packed with flesh. I mean, no wonder they drew sea monsters. There were so many whales and creatures. And, you know, they found creatures deep under the water. I think it was, you know, and that's just turned into a plastic cesspool. Yeah. Yeah. The environment is under attack by our species, for sure. And uh, I'm concerned about it. Oh, are you? Yeah, I am. Well, what do you think about how they turned childbirth into an entertainment on the television. Yeah, that's kind of strange to me, for sure. Well, nobody is talking about stopping this population growth. Nobody is talking about it. And women seem to think that that's the greatest accomplishment, is to have a baby. Oh, yeah. I think most women are very aware of whether or not they are going to have enough time to, to have kids. And if they don't, I think they feel less about themselves. I, yeah, I've experienced that firsthand with a lot of my female friends. Something men well, don't worry I, about. I think there are peoples on Earth that definitely need to propagate. For example, Tasmanians and American Indians, Carthaginians and Etruscans. I mean, there are peoples all over the world that are in danger of becoming extinct. For sure. For sure. But uh, what about the Irish? Or how are they doing? Well, there's 5 million in Ireland right now, including the extensive immigration since I've been here. Um, that's probably a 1 million extra. But there's 80 million Irish abroad. So two million Irish left in the famine times, and that is now 80 million in Australia, America, South Africa. Um, but um, so that's the story of the Irish. Now, if they all moved back to Ireland, we'd have quite an island here, that's for sure. For sure. Now, Mr. McDermott, we're just about going to be done with our time for this conversation. I, I'd love to talk with you again if you ever have time to. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying yourself. I certainly am. I'm, I want to give you an opportunity to maybe just, you can sing a song if you want, number one. And number two, reflect, share something with the folks who are listening that you would love to share. Well, I you know, I have to be careful what I say because you can upset 
the people in America so easily nowadays. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, I have to be careful. Um, and uh, did you get my list of songs for you to play the music? Uh, no, I, I, I received two videos of you singing songs. Uh, but well, maybe... yeah, I thought you wanted me to give you records for you to play. Yeah, that too. That yeah. you were going to look them up. That Yeah, I, maybe I just haven't seen them yet. Uh, I'll look. Did you send them to him? Okay, James, he'll send you the... Um, I, I chose three recordings. Um, one is um, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody from 1935 from the Zig Field movie. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm told I should tell you about the game of life and how to play it. Yeah, um, go for it. James is there. 19, 1924. It was written by Florence Goville Shin, and it was written for ladies. And at one point, she even says, ladies, we must. It starts out saying, some people think that life is a battle, but it is actually a game. But in order to play the game, you must know the rules. And it goes on to talk about, you know, you can't have a negative thought. You can't say a negative thing. You have to be positive. Um, and then she wrote one called The Secret Door to Success. These are little books. And they're still in print. And it's about... Um, uh, in, she made it for theatrical and artists. Because her husband was an Ashcan school painter. Mm. But anyway, that's the book that really pulled me out of my the, the negativity that I had. Um, because I didn't know anything. I'm from the suburbs. And, you know, I just wanted... I mean, my whole life has been an escape from the suburbs. Wow. Wow. Have you have you succeeded? Well, I think I have. I mean, I'm living in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, indeed. It's a great honor to talk with you. I really appreciate you taking the time out, and I look forward to your future works. I look forward to the documentary coming out. Um I believe it's called Present Imperfect. Um, yes, that's right. And I think that's a, an, an interesting title. Um, because um, the present isn't as I would like it. But artists have never liked the present. You know, they've always rebelled against it. Really? Why do you think that is? That's an interesting insight. Well, I think that I mean, imagine the futurists. They were rebelling against the 19th century. They wanted it destroyed. And when World War I came about, they saw this is the way to destroy everything. It was war. And when you think about the old cities that were built in the 19th century, it was all built by individual people laying bricks and doing all the intricate work in order to put them together. But our modern cities are just these machines pouring concrete and girders. And, you know, think of the difference between the old cities and how easily it was to just bomb them. They're constantly destroying the past. Anyway. I hear you. I I appreciate I appreciate uh, you have you've given me a lot to think about and uh, also you're very charming 
Well, it's wonderful talking with you, sir. All right. Well, that's very nice. And I hope your general public goes out there and they do their best to restore the past. I mean, America would be great if it was had its positive past restored. I mean, you don't have to restore the negative part of it. What's the positive part? How, how, what are we well, looking uh, for? Certainly the way people dressed. I mean, they knew that. And certainly the way they built a house and their furniture and, you know, their, their dance steps. I mean, nobody even knows how to dance anymore. I mean, the people are horrible. I mean, just horrible. I can't even look at them anymore. I find them so disappointed. Because of their attire? Because of their outward? Uh... Their attire is awful. And I don't understand why girls aren't content with being pretty. Instead of being pretty, what are they trying to be? Glamorous? You know what they're trying to be. I... Well, anyway, um, they need to dress. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's very interesting that you bring this up because I know you're not there. But you say, we, you know, America should be looking at its past, go back to the way it was in the past, uh, I paraphrase you. And you have the, and I know you're not in line with these people, but you have the folks that are, you know, wanting to make America great again. This is a different idea you're talking about, right? You know, it's not the Trump sort of mentality, making, make America great, make it the way it was. That reference is a negative one, is one steeped in hate. That, I think it's a good opportunity for you to juxtapose your view to that one as an American citizen or a former American citizen. Well, you know, the, um, the Trump idea of making America great, I think that I certainly, I, I certainly don't want the disco 70s, you know, to be restored I know a lot of people would like to do it, but um, I, I think there is so much. I'm getting all these cue cards saying, you know, stay away from this. But um, <laughs> James, um, it's a landmine area. And it um, is. We're not Trump supporters. I know that. Believe me. Yeah. I see a great opportunity for for uh, David to to talk about the the past of this country in a in a healthy manner as the past. right as as compared to to offset that very hate-based mentality that comes out of the trumpdom that's what i'm trying to do here because we're lack of education we're we're, we're you know, yes that's a big part of it reading as as david was talking about before we don't do enough of it we don't understand the past and and, and what what the the wisdom from it, you know, the the more earnest uh, genuineness of it, and we're in trouble here. You know, you guys are in Ireland. We're in trouble over here. You know, we need some guidance and great thinkers and experimenters such as David. You know, I figured he can give us a little insight. That's all I was trying to do. I know it's a landmine area, but I I trust David knows how to negotiate it. Well, that's not easy, that negotiation, because you know that the the cultural society is just jumping on everybody that is out of line in any way at all. And it's very difficult to have a discussion. 
you know, when you can't put forward thoughts. So, anyway, um, respect everyone. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> I hear you, sir. I appreciate the time, and uh, maybe you'll give me some more in the future, and we could we can get into some of these ideas further. But either way, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And James, you're 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 wonderful to work with. Thank you so much, too, sir. I wish you the best. Thank you. Okay. And you, um, you see how this broadcast is received, and then we can go on the next time, and talk a little more. You, but you have to see how it's received. Yes, sir. Good idea. I'm sure it'll be received well. I'll let you know, though. All right. Well, goodbye. Goodbye. Ciao. Signing off. I have an ear for music and I have an eye for a maid. I link a pretty girly with each pretty tune that's played. They go together like sunny weather because with a man of a I've studied girls and music, so I'm qualified to say a pretty girl is like a melody that haunts you night and day, just like the strain of a haunting refrain. She'll start upon a marathon and run around your brain. You can't escape. She's in your memory by morning, night, and noon. She will leave you and then come back again. A pretty girl is just like a pretty tune, a pretty girl is like a melody that haunts you night and day, just like the strain of a haunting refrain, she'll start upon a Shock, they should.
should try to stamp Instead of landing on Plymouth Rock Plymouth Rock would land on them In olden days A glimpse of stocking Was a look thought of something shocking But now God knows Anything goes Good offers too Who once knew better words Now only used for letter words Writing prose Anything goes If driving fast cars you like, if low bars you like, if old hymns you like, if bare limbs you like, if May West you like, or me undressed you like, why nobody will oppose. When every night the sense and smart is intruding and nudist parties in studio, anything goes. When a missus McLean, God bless her, can get Russian red to yes sir, then I suppose anything goes. When Rockefeller still can hoard enough money to let Matt Gordon produce his show, anything goes. The world has gone mad today, and good, bad today, and black, white today, and days, nights today, and that gent. And now from the February 13 and February 20, 2023 edition of the New Yorker magazine, Postscript. This is called Tom Verlaine, written by Patti Smith. He awoke to the sound of water dripping into a rusted sink. The streets below were bathed in medieval moonlight, reverberating silence. He lay there grappling with the terror of beauty as the night unfolded like a Chinese screen. He lay shuddering, riveted by flickering movements of aliens and angels as the words and melodies of Marquis Moon were formed, drop by drop, note by note, from a state of calm yet sinister excitement. He was Tom Verlaine, and that was his process, exquisite torment. Born Thomas Joseph Miller, raised in Wilmington, Delaware, he left his parental home and shed his name, a discarded skin curled in the corner of a modest garage among stacks of used air conditioners that required his father's constant professional attention. There were hockey sticks and a bicycle and piles of Tom's old newspapers strewn in the back, covered with ghostly outlines of distorted objects. He would run over tin cans until they were flattened, barely recognizable, and then spray them with gold, his two-dimensional sculptures, each representing a rapturous musical phrase. In high school, he played the saxophone, embracing John Coltrane and Albert Ayler. He played hockey, too, and when a flying puck knocked out his front teeth, he was obliged to put away his saxophone and dedicate himself to the electric guitar. He lived 28 minutes from where I was raised. We could easily have sauntered into the same Wawa on the Wilmington-South Jersey border in search of a Yoo-Hoo or Tasty Cakes. We might have met two black sheep on some rural stretch, each carrying books of the poetry of French symbolists. But we didn't. 
Not until 1973, on East 10th Street, across from St. Mark's Church, where he stopped me and said, You're Smith. He had long hair, and we clocked each other, both echoing the future, both wearing clothes they didn't wear anymore. I noticed the way his long arms hung and his equally long and beautiful hands, and then we went our separate ways. That was until Easter night, April 14, 1974. Lenny Kay and I took a rare taxi ride from Ziegfeld Theater after seeing the premiere of Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, straight down to the Bowery to see a new band called Television. The club was CBGB. There were only a handful of people present, but Lenny and I were immediately taken with it, with its pool table and narrow bar and low stage. What we saw that night was kin, our future, a perfect merging of poetry and rock and roll. As I watched Tom play, I thought, had I been a boy, I would have been him. I went to see television whenever they played, mostly to see Tom, with his pale blue eyes and swan-like neck. He bowed his head, gripping his jazz master, releasing billowing clouds, strange alleyways populated with tiny men, a murder of crows, and the cries of bluebirds rushing through a replica of space, all transmuted through his long fingers all but strangling the neck of his guitar. Through the coming weeks, we drew closer. As we walked the city streets, we would improvise ongoing tales, our own Arabian nights. We discovered that we both loved the work of the Armenian-American composer Alan Hofhanis, our favorite work being Prayer of St. Gregory. Examining each other's bookcases, we were amazed to find that our books were nearly identical, even those by authors difficult to find. Kossary, Hediat, Tutuolo, Mrabet. We were both independent literary scouts, and we came to share our secret sources. He devoured poetry in dark, chocolate-covered Entenmann's donuts, downed with coffee and cigarettes. Sometimes he would seem dreamy and far away, then suddenly break into peals of laughter. He was angelic yet slightly demonic, a cartoon character with the grace of a dervish. I knew him then. We liked holding hands and spending hours browsing the shelves of Flying Saucer News and going to 48th Street and looking at guitars that he could never afford and riding the Staten Island Ferry after three sets at CBGB, and climbing six flights of stairs to the apartment on East 11th Street, and lying together on a mattress, gazing at the ceiling, and listening to the rain, and hearing something else. There was no one like Tom. He possessed the child's gift of transforming a drop of water into a poem that somehow begat music. In his last days, he had the selfless support of devoted friends. Having no children, he welcomed the love he received from my daughter Jessie and my son Jackson. In his final hours, watching him sleep, I traveled backward in time. We were in the apartment, and he cut my hair 
and some pieces stuck out this way and that, so he called me Winghead. In the years to follow, simply Wing. Even when we got older, always Wing. And he, the boy who never grew up, aloft the Omega, a golden filament in the vibrant violet light.
the motivated. Shh, listen. Talk through the walls, beige, about ways in which to subtly hypnotize colleagues to bow down to their weaker impulses and thus obey. This inspires me to be strong and to work against that sort of throng towards a realization of collective power, wisdom, and justice. There may be trouble ahead But while there's moonlight and music And love and romance Let's face the music and dance before the fiddlers have fled Before they ask us to pay the bill And while we still have a chance Let's face the music and dance Soon different tune and then there may be teardrops to shed so while there's moonlight and music and love and romance let's face the music and dance dance to shed So while there's moonlight and music and love and romance Let's face the music and dance Dance Let's face the music and dance So while there's moonlight and And there you have it, episode 511 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, 
David McDermott. I would also like to thank the New Yorker magazine, Patty Smith and Tom Verlaine, and these musical artists. The Lonious Monk, LCD Sound System, Clico Club Eskimos, John Steele, Television, Ella Fitzgerald, Brantford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself.